We are continuing our series in the book of Micah. We're quickly approaching the end of the series. We have just this Lord's Day and two more Lord's Days left. We're going to be looking this morning at the first part of Micah chapter 6. Micah is, if, as you open your Bible, it is about uh, two-thirds of the way through from the beginning. And now we are going to look at verses 1 through 8. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord, yes, even in these times, is completely sufficient. Micah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God most on high. Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Dear Lord, we come and we ask that you would open up your word to us, that we might behold marvelous things in your word. We ask, O Lord, that we would not merely see your word or even understand it, but that it would take deep root in our hearts, that we would be changed, that you would use your word to make us more and more in the image of Jesus Christ. We long to be with him. Set our eyes upon Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Because of the fall, because we are all sinners, We have two tendencies in how we view our relationship with God. First, we think that we are fine. We think that God sees us as the good guys. We remember every small good thing that we do. And we forget all of the bad that we do. The second tendency that we have is that we think that if God is mad at us, If God is angry with us, 
We want to know what we can do to make it better. Or at least to make God forget about the bad things that we've done. This is basic works righteousness. That is to make the good outweigh the bad. But God tells us that that is not the way that we relate to Him. In His Word, God tells us that He is the one who reaches out to us. He is the one who restores the relationship that is broken between Himself and us. And once He restores that relationship, He wants us. Not our stuff, not our works. He wants us. Micah is telling Judah that right now. So a word that Micah gives that is timeless, and it applies today to you and me. And so this morning, as we look at this first section of Micah chapter 6, we see Micah give us two commands from, three commands from the Lord. First, hear. Second, remember. And third, respond. Hear, remember, and respond. God is speaking to his people through his servant Micah. And he's speaking just as clearly to us today as he was to the people of Judah in Micah's lifetime. Let's begin then by looking at the first command that comes to us, the command to hear. We hear from God because God speaks through his servant. And we see this in verse 1. Now, this chapter begins the third and final section of the book of Micah. Verse 1 begins with this command, hear, hear what the Lord says. Now this is the third time that we see this command to hear. We've seen it first in chapter 1, verse 2, second in chapter 3, verse 1, and now again here. This divides Micah roughly into three sections. And this last section is like the previous two sections in that this last section starts with a negative portion, And then it proceeds later to a positive portion. Today we will see the lawsuit that the Lord starts against his people. Next week, the Lord will follow with judgment. And then we will conclude with an expression of God's love and compassion in spite of the sins of his people. So what we have here is a covenant lawsuit. Now, what does that mean? It means that God is bringing a complaint against His people for breaking His covenant. Now, as soon as I mention that, Old Testament history should come to your mind. As we think about God's covenant with His people, you should be thinking about Abraham. You should be thinking about Moses. You should be thinking about David and the covenant that God made with each of them. This should also remind you, as we think of each of these giants of the faith, that they too were sinners, that they too had broken God's covenant. This is a story that we see throughout God's Word, throughout the Old Testament. And what we see here is that God has not forgotten His covenant. He's not forgotten His people. He will not let His people wander away from Him and take His relationship with them for granted. 
Now, this is the danger in any relationship, isn't it? We see this in marriages. We see this in friendships. If we begin to take that relationship for granted, the relationship fades away. If you are friends with someone, and you take them for granted, and you don't pursue them, and you don't talk to them, and you don't see them, they won't be your friend for very long. The relationship will dry up. And so this is what the people of God are experiencing They are walking away from God. They are presuming upon the relationship that they have with God and taking it for granted. Now, verse number 1 gives us a clue that this is the case. Micah is hearing the Lord speak to him to bring this lawsuit against Israel. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. This is almost a parenthesis. God is addressing Israel, but now he stops, and it's as if he turns to Micah, and he says, Micah, get up and begin to plead the case. And the reason we can see this is each of the verbs in that sentence is in the the third person singular. Micah is is addressed directly by God. And this is a a public case. And therefore the Lord tells Micah to get up, to arise, to come forward and to speak for him. And the language that's actually used here is technical. It refers to a covenant lawsuit. Plead your case. That means to contend legally with someone. And all these verbs, as I've said, are in the singular. So God is making Micah the prosecutor for his case. Now, this gives us insight into the job of the prophet and how God uses prophets. He speaks through his prophets to his people. That's because God is the God who speaks. He's not silent He will not leave his people alone to wander away or to destroy themselves. No, he reaches out to them through his prophets. And God does that today. But he does it much more broadly than speaking through Micah. Today he does that through his word. Everywhere that God's word is, God is speaking to you. He will not let you go. He will not leave you alone. Will you listen to the Lord now as he speaks to you through his word? Now, if you know anything about legal actions, you know that what you need is a jury, a set of witnesses. Now, who should God call to be his witnesses? Not in the sense of testifying about something, but rather to witness the case, to hear the testimony. Who should God call? Well, he can't call upon Judah to be his witnesses because the lawsuit is against them. And he can't call on other people to be his witnesses because they too are fallen. They too have failed. And so God calls on ancient ones, the mountains themselves, to hear his complaint. Now, why does God use this image? It may seem odd to call on an inanimate object as a witness to a case against people. The image that we want to see here is that the mountains are, as Micah says, enduring foundations. That is, they have been around forever. They have seen everything. 
They've seen all that's gone on. They've seen all interactions between God and His people. And so it's perfectly appropriate for God to call upon them because they already know what has happened. Now, the image here that you should have in your mind is of Micah standing in the court of the temple, looking out upon the hills and the mountains, and calling them to witness. He is making a case against Israel, and he is drawing on the majesty and the importance of the place and the surroundings to make this case. Now, the other thing is that this is also a pattern that God has called upon throughout the Old Testament. God had specifically called upon heaven and earth to witness his covenant that he made with Israel in the time of Moses. Three times in the book of Deuteronomy, he calls upon heaven and earth to witness this covenant. We see one example of this in Deuteronomy chapter 30. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. But don't get the impression that God is dependent on others, even upon mountains, to side with him. The last line of verse 2 makes this very clear. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. When God says that he will contend with Israel, the verb there means that he will determine what is right. It's not to be thought of in the sense that God will fight with Israel or counteract with Israel and somehow the issue is in doubt. No, this verb here means to set things right. It's the same word used in the famous verse where Job says, there is no arbiter between me and God. There is no one between me and God to put things right. And so God calls Israel and us to hear his complaint. Because the first step toward restoration is this. What is wrong? Then the second thing that we need to keep in mind is that this was no ordinary lawsuit. This is God's complaint that he brings in a covenant lawsuit. And God then calls upon his people to remember. Now, if you have ever been involved in a lawsuit, or know someone who has, you know that a very principle of a lawsuit is hostility. That people who are engaged in a court battle are hostile to each other. A great example of this is a divorce case. Divorce cases get very ugly. Again, if you've ever observed one, you'll see how ugly and hostile they get. Oftentimes, in those court cases, the parties would, are more concerned that the other party lose than that they win. They want to make life miserable for the other side. But here in this lawsuit, God opens less with an accusation and more rather with an appeal. Look with me at verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And again in verse 5, Oh, my people, remember. God is reaching out to His people with compassion and love. He's bringing this complaint, but He does it in a way to draw them to Himself. Now, what is God's complaint? Is it all of the idolatry that Israel has been performing? Is it that they have stained his holy temple? 
Is it all the acts of injustice that they have undertaken? No. He wants to know what Israel has against him. It's as if he says, our relationship is broken. Is there something that you think I've done to cause that? If so, then tell me now. And so he says it this way in verse 3. What have I done? Now this is very open-ended. God is asking if there is any possible wrong that he has done that Israel can cite. Now, usually when we are involved in a conflict with a relationship, we try to limit our exposure, don't we? We try to keep things in the here and the now. We try to make things as narrow as possible. Have you ever been in a conflict with someone and just hated the fact that they bring up wrongs from long ago? And you just want to say, listen, I don't want to hear what I did a year ago. No, you can't say 10 years ago I should have done that. No, we're talking about here and now. But that's not what God does. What God does is, he says, is there anything you could possibly have against me in the 700 years that you have been a nation? Is there one thing you can accuse me of? And then I think God does something very interesting. He says in verse 3, how have I wearied you? Now, this complaint is even more pointed. Because the verb to weary means to wear out, to exhaust, to exasperate. It, it describes being so frustrated that you throw up your hands and you give up. You don't expect any change. You don't expect any fix. You don't expect anything to ever be right. And after all, that's all because it's all the other person's fault. They've wearied you. So there's a sense here in which Israel is bored with God. Think about that for a moment. God is a drag for them. It's hard to be with God. God brings them no joy. God wearies them. Now think about that. God is asking his people if that's the problem. And if it is, show him how. How is that possible that God could weary them? But let me ask you this. Does this complaint apply to you? Do you get tired of God? Does hearing from him in his word tire you? Does praying put you to sleep? Is it a burden to obey the commands of God? Have you forgotten Jesus' words, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. God is calling upon you today to change your thinking about Him and about your relationship with Him. God then moves straight on to His defense in verses 4 and 5. He's demanded that Israel answer him, but Israel has no answer. And so verse 4 begins with the word for. This is a causal word. God is now giving the cause as to why he has not wearied them. It's as if God is not satisfied with no accusation from Israel. He wants to positively assert his defense that there is no way he could have been considered to have been in the wrong. And so he tells Israel, 
to remember, in verse 5, his righteous acts. God has not only done nothing wrong, he has done everything right. Now, when God speaks of his righteous acts, we have to see that this is broader even than his saving acts. These are acts that vindicate God. These are the ways that he put things right for his people who were oppressed and lost. And there are four types of acts that God speaks of here. The first is redemption. We see this in verse or verse 4, excuse me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Now, God intentionally goes back 700 years to the Exodus. He's saying, does my deliverance of you have an expiration date? Have you forgotten about it? Have you forgotten what I've done? Now, if we think about it, when something is expired, it is useless. Think about milk or bread. After all, that's why we're having a run on grocery stores this week as people rush out upon news of this virus to try to buy up anything that might expire so that they can have useful food. But that's not how God works. His mighty redemption continues. It has no expiration date. It never becomes useless. It is always a part of what we need. Is the story of redemption wearisome to you? Or rather, do you still long to tell the old, old story of how Jesus died for you? This is something that we must confront. Do we always need the new, the interesting, or is the gospel enough for us? We live in a day that worships the new and the exciting and that casts aside the tried and the true. The second act that God speaks of is his providing leadership for his people, also here at the end of verse 4. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So God cites the leaders that he provided to Israel upon freeing them. Telling Israel, I freed you and I didn't leave you to yourselves. I didn't leave you wondering what would happen. I gave you leaders. I gave you Moses, the mediator. I gave you Aaron, the priest. I gave you Miriam, the prophetess. It's as if God is saying, was it wearisome that I did not leave you to wander around aimlessly? Would it have been better if I left you alone? No, I gave you leaders. The third mighty act that God provided was protection. We see this in verse 5. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him. Now God now picks up the story in Numbers chapter 22 of Balak and Balaam. You may recall that Balak was one of the pagan kings who sought to defeat Israel. And he enlisted Balaam to prophesy against Israel, to curse them, to destroy them. Balak tried to have Israel cursed. But God wouldn't let it happen. You may remember that God at every turn stopped Balaam from cursing Israel. So much so that Balak came to Balaam full of anger and said, Why aren't you doing what I'm paying you to do? And Balaam said, I can't. I can only do what God gives to me to do. God stopped this attack upon Israel. 
And so again, God is saying, was it tiresome when I stopped this ungodly king from trying to destroy you? Was it so hard to bear when I protected you all the way into the promised land? No, God protected his people. The fourth and final act that Micah rehearses for us is that God fulfills his promises. And what happened in verse 5 from Shittim to Gilgal? Now, this is a very condensed way of describing God fulfilling his promises. And what you need to know is that it speaks of two places. The first place, Shittim, was where Israel camped before it crossed the River Jordan. The second Gilgal is where Israel arrived after crossing the river. So what Micah is referring to here is Israel coming into the promised land across the Jordan. In the midst of the spring flood, you may remember the story of the roaring river Jordan. And God cut off the river so that Israel could walk across on dry land. God kept his promise to them that he would bring them into the promised land. Now, what does all this mean? God wants us to remember who he is and what he has done. (coughs) To remember something is more than simply to be able to recite it. No, it means that you are moved by what you know. You are driven by what you remember. Do you remember what Jesus has done for you? Does that change how you see your life? Does it drive you to live for Jesus and to tell others about him? It should. As we remember what God has done, it should change the way we live. But there's even more than that. What God is telling Israel is if he was able to carry them out of Egypt across a desert, and into the promised land and protect them, isn't he able to protect them from the threat of Assyria? If he protected them in the past, couldn't he protect them now? If he delivered then, won't he deliver now? And isn't the same thing true of us? If Jesus can deliver us from sin, death, and hell, Isn't he able to get us through a coronavirus outbreak? Isn't he able to get us through problems in our families? Isn't he able to get us through financial difficulties? Now, the key here is he will get us through perhaps not in the way that we would draw up or that we would design, but we know that he will never leave us. He will never abandon us, so we should never lose hope. So, how then are we to respond to God's lawsuit? Micah calls upon us to hear. He calls upon us to remember. And now he calls us, in verses 6 to 8, to respond. The scene is set. The Lord has opened the court. He has called his people and the prophet to bring an accusation against them. He's called heaven and earth to witness. He has lodged his complaint. You think I'm boring. You think I'm unnecessary, I'm old-fashioned, I'm wearisome. And then he brings all the evidence of all that he has done for his people. 
Now, if we know we are in the wrong, the question is, what do we do next? And in verses 6 and 7, we see the typical human response. Let me do something for God. Now, I want you to see that this is not just something in Micah's day. It is part of our human nature. People in general are not oblivious to their sin. Now, they may call it something else. They may say, well, I'm not perfect. Or they may try to minimize it. They'll say, well, it's really not that big of a deal. But people understand that they are in the wrong. And people also know that there is an objective right and wrong. We can't live otherwise. So, if if someone ever comes up to you and says, I don't believe there's any objective morality, there's any objective right or wrong, you should look at them and say, okay, and then take their car. Because you'll see how quickly they'll come up with an objective sense of right and wrong. And how quickly they will say, thou shalt not steal, is an unchangeable law. And so, the typical expression of what people have when they understand that they're in the wrong is they want to know, what do I do to pacify God? Now, they may not say it exactly like that, but that's the typical meaning. What do I do to get God off my back? And this is true even of people who don't acknowledge God. I saw this week an example of this, when someone who is a pagan, who makes no pretense of belief in Christ, who doesn't read the Bible, said that we're experiencing the coronavirus because of all we've done against Mother Nature. And so what we need to do is pacify Mother Nature. We need to pass environmental laws. We need to take certain actions to get Mother Nature off our back so that this virus goes away. Now, as ridiculous as that sounds, we have to understand that this is a part of human nature. And Micah gives voice to this in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? So what do I bring? This person says. Micah is speaking on behalf of Israel. What do I bring? How do I submit? How do I fix this? Now, I want you to see that there are several things going on here. The first is that there is an assumption that I can make everything right. That I can do something and I can fix the problem. That I can stop God from being mad. Second, I want you to see that there is bargaining going on here. That the person who speaks moves from less to more. He starts, for example, here, In verse 6, shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Now, a burnt offering is a costly offering. There are two main types of offerings in the sacrificial system in the Bible. There are peace offerings and there are burnt offerings. And when someone made a peace offering, they were able to take the remainder of the animal home and use it for food. But with a burnt offering, the entire animal was consumed. It was costly. You were not able to use any of the animal. It cost you everything. And then it's as if the person says, well, okay, you don't want just a burnt offering, God. How about a year-old calf? Again, we have to understand the background for this. The law of God prohibited bringing an animal for a sacrifice for the first seven days of its life. 
but on day eight, you could bring it. And so this person is saying, well, God, here's what I'll do. I'll keep a calf, and I'll take care of it, and I'll feed it, and I'll look after it, and I'll put resources into it, not just for eight days, not just for 38 days, but for a whole year. It'll be expensive to me. How about that? And then it's as if they say, well, if that's not enough, how about, wait, wait, God, here's more. How about thousands of rams? How about 10,000 rivers of oil? And the picture we have in our mind here is the great sacrifices that Solomon did upon the dedication of the temple. It's as if this person says, okay, God, how about I do the temple all over again? Would that be enough? And then they come to the ultimate sacrifice. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Shall I sacrifice my child? And what we see here is there is no end to which people will go in order to try to work their way into heaven. History is full of examples of that. We could take just one. Let's take Martin Luther before he came to faith in Christ. Luther was known to walk upstairs on his knees praying the Lord's Prayer. Luther was known to have visited all sorts of shrines with various relics to try to earn favor with God. Luther was known to actually whip and beat himself as an act of repentance. But the truth is that all of our efforts fall short of what God requires. We can't satisfy him with our work. So what then? Well, then in verse 8, as Micah has done throughout this book, he corrects us. He says, not that, but this. Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He says that the right response to the gracious acts of God is clear, it's simple, it's directed toward others, and it's directed toward God. First of all, it's clear. He has told you. We don't have to figure it out. God has already shown us. He has already told us what He requires of us. And it applies to everyone. He uses this generic phrase, this universalizing phrase, Oh man! It applies to all people of all ages. Now where have we seen what God has shown us? How do we know what we are to do? Well, He has shown us in His Word. His Word is filled with instructions. Our shorter catechism, question three, puts it well. The question asks, what do the scriptures principally teach? And one of the answers is, the duty that God requires of us. God's requirement is clear. But it's also simple. Do you see what Micah says? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And then he limits what this describes, it's not just good in a fuzzy, generic sense. He says, and what is good, what does the Lord require of you, but rather accept only this to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. There's no secret that you have to climb a mountain to go and find out. 
There's no breathtaking task that you have to complete. Just hearing and obeying the word of God. This is what Israel was told, and again, in the book of Deuteronomy. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. It's simple. It's contained. The third thing that Micah describes with this is that it is to be directed toward others. It involves treating others properly. We are to do justice. That means to do the right thing, to treat others properly with justice and grace and peace. And it involves kindness and love, to love kindness. This word kindness here is the great word for God's covenant love. We are to be in relationship with others. We are to treat them as God treats us. But it's not just toward others that we are to live. It's also toward God that we are to live. It means knowing that God is God and we are not. We are to walk humbly. And this adverb means to walk carefully, to walk circumspectly, to have our eyes upon God as we walk, to be aware of His holiness, His grace, that we live in light of the Lord. That all of our life is to be lived before God. Now all of this is to remind us that we live in a relationship with the Lord. Micah is not giving you the perfect works righteousness program. He has rejected that explicitly. He is telling you that the Lord requires living in an ongoing relationship, fellowship, and communion. Now, that can only begin when the barrier that separates you and God is broken down. That barrier is sin. And only Jesus can break the barrier. Only He can bridge the gap. Only He can wipe away sin. But once that's done, Jesus also gives us power by His Spirit to walk with the Lord. To live as the Lord would have us to live. And Jesus Himself told us what the Lord requires of us. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Do you hear the Lord speaking to you today through his word? God calls upon you to hear Him. He calls upon you to remember what He has done for you. And He calls upon you to respond with thanksgiving for the grace that He has showered upon you in the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.